If you are looking for insight on the current state of the markets, the economy, and private equity, Sunina, you're the perfect source for our listeners out there. Welcome to the Benzinga Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Tony Noto. This week's guest is Sunina Sinha Haldea. She's an advisor with the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and the global head of Private Capital Advisory at Raymond James. Sunaina, how are you doing today? Tony, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. There was a big private equity deal this week, and those are few and far between. Uh, what was your immediate reaction to the Toma Bravo uh, $10.5 billion sale? That's not chump change. That's not chump change. It's a huge <laughs> exit for this environment, and a huge congrats to, to the deal team there and to the LPs of the Toma Bravo funds. Um, I think that we have to look at it in the context of where we've been for the last nine months, which has been in a bit of a winter for M&A activity, both exits, i.e. sales um, coming out of private equity portfolios, but also private equity buying assets. Um, I think I'm hoping that uh, that this Tom Bravo deal is a harbinger of things to come. Now, here's why my hope is an educated hope as opposed to uh, as opposed to just spraying and praying that something changes. Um, most of M&A deal volume is driven by private equity, right? Private equity holds companies that need to sell and private equity runs on a clock. Right now, if you look at total private equity, undrawn commitments, so these are funds that are waiting to be called to be put into companies, that stands at over $3.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. You just look at the capital that sits with buyout funds that can do large transactions in profitable companies, that's over $1.1 trillion. So that's a lot of overhang. And one thing that people forget is that private equity runs on a clock and the clock doesn't stop ticking, doesn't stop ticking for you, me or anything. And that clock basically states the following four years or five years of deployment, followed by four or five years of exiting. Mm -hmm. And the more you run down the clock without doing any of the above, i.e. doing new deals, buying companies or selling companies, the, the, the clock then works against you. Your net returns to investors suffer. If you don't put money in the ground and buy companies fast enough, um, your, your net IRRs will suffer. If you don't sell companies according to what the right time to sell it is, generally three, four, five, six years after buying them, your DPI numbers, your distributions to paid in capital numbers suffer. And you need both those things to be very, very standout-ish to be able to raise capital these days. Raising capital is hard for everybody. So private equity can go on pause for three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, but it cannot go on hold forever because investors then say, well, I'm paying you two and 2% management fee to put money in the ground. Why aren't you doing so? Right, and right. I think that we're now starting to see the wheel turning. Um, if you ask my M&A colleagues, they will say that May was one of the highest months for signed sell side engagements that they've seen in recent years. So that's a harbinger of these deals all being prepped right now to come to market in the summer and fall. So I think it's a sign of things to come that the M&A markets will open up and deal activity will pick up. Of course, the big unknown is the debt markets, but we can talk about that uh, a little bit later in the conversation. But for right now, we're seeing a lot of green shoots in private equity firms wanting to buy and sell companies. Oh, definitely. And it's reminding me of a lot of the conversations I had with PE pros um, 10 years ago when uh, there was a lull in deal making as well. And they were talking about holding on to these portfolio companies a little too long and what to do with them and, and how their investors would react to that. And 
they did sort of express optimism last year and they thought that maybe the tide would turn in Q1 of this year, but that wasn't the case. And then it kind of lines up that it was the, uh, I want to get it right. I think the, the lowest M&A volume for a quarter uh, mm-hmm. since 2013. And yes. so it's interesting how like history is repeating itself. I mean, what could we expect in the second half of this year? I think we can expect to see a lot more dynamism in the M&A markets in the lower mid-market and mid-market of private equity. What does that mean? That means companies sub 50 million of EBITDA, they don't require the syndicated loan market to get the deal done. Those companies will have a receptive audience. Why? Because leverage is available through direct lenders. The private credit markets are open for business. Those folks also have a clock. If you have a private credit fund, you are also running on a clock. You also need to put money to work. Structured credit funds are all seeing attractive deals come their way and they're doing those deals. They're underwriting those deals. So if you're operating in that sub 50 million EBITDA range, you're going to see a lot more transactions, both M&A processes that where you can cherry pick your spots mm-hmm. and or uh, you may be saying, OK, I'm going to take my own companies out for sale because I need to return capital to my investors. Otherwise, I'm going to fall behind the distributions to paid in capital DPI, which is the most important metric, some would argue to investors, you will find fall behind that curve and you don't want to do that. You don't want to be fundraising with that fact pattern. Right, So I right. think in that end of the market, we're going to see transactions coming to market. Over $50 million, i.e. the bigger deals, you do need the you know, bank debt, right? You, do, you need the syndicate loan market function or you need banks to provide you with leverage. And mm-hmm. that is still, that is, that is a tale of idiosyncrasy right now. The, the markets are not functioning like they were once used to, but the green shoot there is we're starting to see a, a pricing in of terminal rates, right? So we, we all expect now, given the inflation print this morning, that the Fed will take a, why is they calling it the Fed skip? The Fed will take right. a pause rate hiking. And folks expect, okay, maybe there might be one more hike after that. Um, but that's it. We're near the end of the hiking cycle such that banks can then underwrite risk. So with that, we'll start to see more functioning of the debt markets for larger deals. But certainly in the 50 million and south EBITDA range, we'll start to see deals come to market for sure. Just before we wrap up this topic, I want to talk about the type of deal we saw. Uh, what does it say about PE? Uh, Tomo Bravo specifically did a deal with NASDAQ, and they sold yeah. a, a, a large portion of their portfolio company, uh, Adenza, but they kept about a 15% stake. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not the first billion-dollar-plus deal that they did um, with a stock exchange. They did mm-hmm. one with the New York Stock Exchange, uh, back in 2020, I think right before or right in the midst of the uh, the pandemic. Uh, what does it say about that? This particular type of deal. What's the, what's the strategy here? I think the strategy here is twofold. It is, and again, the, the ultimate viewpoint on this has to come from Tom Bravo. But when you're reading what was announced and had the playbook that's being deployed here is that strategic buyers will always pay up for strategic assets. And that's what you have here. You have in NASDAQ a strategic buyer. They will always pay more for companies, and especially strategically oriented companies, than private equity buyers. So good for Tom Bravo for finding a strategic buyer for the asset. So that's fantastic. Um, and I think that you're seeing that a, a leaning into businesses with predictable revenue, right? So you think about why did NASDAQ do this from their perspective? Why does this make sense? 
it really is about building up soft a software business with a recurring revenue business model. In this market environment and this macro that we live in, people will pay up for annualized recurring revenues, and which this very much very much brought to the table for Nasdaq. Now, Nasdaq stock didn't react very well; it was down quite a bit yesterday. But that's a that's a, that's a one day event. I think over time, when you when when you hear Nasdaq talk about its rationale for the sale, it really is predictability of the revenue stream that was attracted. Yeah, I did see that about the stock. But and, and with all this dry powder, you're still not seeing a PE, a PE sponsor come in and be like, well, we can pay north of 10.5, huh? Well, the, the PE buyer is needs to enter at a price where it can make two and a half times. Mm. So, yes, of course, they can put any number out there, but they got, they got to make, they have to make money. They have to make a return on that. Yeah. And so generally, when you put pit a private equity buyer head to head with a strategic, the strategic can pay more because the private equity in, in, investor has to price in its own fees. Remember, there's fees on the capital that goes in. For, it costs of capital considerations are different for a private equity sponsor buyer than for strategic buyer, number one. And number two, the strategic buyer has synergies that they right. can price in, which the sponsor usually cannot unless they're using it for bolt-on purposes. <laughs> so I, I wanted to bring up a little bit about the image of private equity. Yeah, it's it's an industry that you are a, a top player in, and I know from experience of of traveling to different PE events over the years and not seeing um, too many uh, women out there uh, inking deals. It's pre predominantly men, and I remember asking some of the women at these uh, private equity events. Uh, what's it like? And and they looked at me and said, you have no idea how difficult it is. <laughs> and yeah. I, I read something that you had written uh, recently um, that um, I, you've had your fair share of inappropriate comments along the way. Yeah. <laughs> I was, so you wrote it for penews.com. And I, yes. I just wanted to get your thoughts on private equity as an industry. I think it, it still struggles with this image problem, saddling companies with debt, and perhaps um, too much so because a lot of them are going into bankruptcy. They did during the financial crisis. And a lot of folks that I've spoken to anticipate that that'll happen again this year. And I wanted to get your thoughts on one, what it's like being uh, one young, a young uh, mover and shaker in this industry. Uh, two, being a, a woman in this space and if representation is improving. And three, what what folks like you are doing to make sure that maybe PE gets the, the makeover that it, it, it needs to um, uh, appeal to the, the average consumer? Yeah. So I let me start in reverse chronological order and talk about the industry and its reputation and its contributions to society, if you will, what is the value of private equity in the world today? And then we'll move backwards into, um, you know, probably more disappointing territory, which is representation of right. women and women of color and, and, you know, lots of isms that come with it often. Also, some of it stereotype, but some of it very legitimate. So when it comes to private equity and its image problem, it is so easy to say, hey, they saddle companies with debt and then they go bankrupt. But remember, the, the incentives are not aligned for that to happen because with private equity is a long only model, Tony, right? Pr private equity buys, it doesn't short, it goes long, number one, right? And it buys low and sells high. That's the model. Buy at a, a company of this size 
and sell a bigger company three to five years later. It's very simple. And now the question is, how do you make that company bigger? How do you finance the acquisition? And how do you finance the growth of the business? So you're adding value on the way out. Because it has to create a more valuable business, otherwise it can't sell it for more than it bought it. It has to make the business stronger, more efficient, more operationally resilient, and a better economic contributor to society and to the economy around it in order for that to happen. Often means way more jobs growth because the business is growing, the business goes through international expansion, business goes through acquiring new companies. It often means that the, the companies are left much larger, more scale players. And so whenever you have private equity inflows of FDI into countries, if you look at emerging marketing and economies, if you look at parts of the United States, for example, where capital has not flown to more, more, um, more naturally, i.e. the Midwest, etc., you see that every time you have private equity inflow, it creates a thriving entrepreneurial community because that private equity is designed the way it's engineered to build better companies, build bigger, healthier companies. Because that's the only way you get someone new to come in and buy that business for you if you create value, if you create something right. more valuable. 100% that if you cannot do that, if you are one of those uh, in those unfortunate moments in your portfolio as a private equity fund, and almost every private equity fund has one or two of these stories of, hey, I tried, I couldn't get there. I have 10 or 15 portfolio companies in this fund, and one of them didn't make it. I couldn't turn it to, into what I thought I would turn it into. So either I sell it at a loss, or in the Armageddon scenario, I lost the business in entirety. If you look at the loss ratio in private equity, which means a total wipeout, it's mm. incredibly low. It's, it's one of the lowest in any market. So private equity does not want to lose, have a complete wipe because that's terrible to their own fundraising prospects out there because it's so rare to have a complete loss. Yeah, you can lose money, but to have a complete wipeout, a bankruptcy, pretty low. Okay. And what you're seeing right now in the last nine months is that debt hasn't been so available. So the companies they're buying, certainly in this cycle, are not overlevered. They can't be because there isn't that much debt, debt available. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a slight, slight over-equitization of deals. Right. So that's in the private equity perception issue. I think it comes from all the, all the stories of the heyday that took the industry um, by storm and its reputation for being barbarians of the gate and whatnot. But I think if anyone actually studies the business model or looks under the hood, and especially the, the, the private equity sponsors that play in the mid-market, the upper mid-market, all they're doing is buying, creating value, making bigger, healthier businesses and selling them on. That's the model. That's how they're incentivized. But do you think that over the past 10 years, they've gotten better at um, bringing that message out there and changing the narrative in a way for better and, and you know citing examples in a much more, um, in, in a way that they weren't prior to say, you know, Mitt Romney's, uh, yes. you know, run for the president. Yeah. Right. I, I think that it, it's a question of who you ask, right? So they've done a great job of doing that in their ecosystem, i.e. doing that amongst the advisors, the investors, the players that they deal with all understand how it works. But they haven't been as so the industry at large has not been so good at doing so across the board with the common average American or, or, or Brit or European. That still has wood to chop, but they've done made some good steps in organizing themselves better. There's a couple of associations. There's an association called the Institution Limited Partner Advi- uh, uh, Advisory for a uh, Governance Committee called ILPA in the U.S. 
There's mm. Invest Europe here in um, in Europe, and so they're doing a better job of telling the story. But your question and the thesis we added makes me feel like not yet. We're still not there yet. We still have a lot of evangelism to do. And right. I think it's important that they do do so. And private equity, Tony touches everything. The mic you're on was probably made by a company that is backed by private equity. The water you drink, right? The roads you're traveling on, the airport you're taking off from or landing into. It's all owned by a private equity sponsor in one way, shape or form. It is unbelievable of the things on your desk, what percentage of it will be owned by a private equity backed company. Quite a lot, quite a lot for sure. Yeah. To your point on representations, I think that's where the industry has done a very disappointing job. It is still far too low. We're still in the single digits for female representation in private equity in general. But when it comes to senior women, it's sub 5%. And when it comes to women leading businesses, folks who are in my chair, sub 1%. It's, it's very, very low when it comes to both on the buy side of private equity or on the sell side. Dismal. Um, numbers. Is there a lot of talk behind it? Yes. Now, just keep in mind, we've gone through a, a macro cycle where the GP was king, where the financial sponsor was king, they right. clicked fingers and money came, right? They were able to fundraise very quickly. That tide has just turned. And by, by just turned, I mean only just in the last six, seven months, it's become difficult to do so, which puts the investor in the driving driver's seat. And my, certainly my hope and expectation is that these investors will now start asking tough questions. If I have if I only have limited capital, I need to commit to one of two funds. Maybe I will commit to the one that has better diversity policies. Maybe right. I will commit to the one with better ESG policies. This is where you drive change in this environment, right? This is a silver lining of, of a more stressed macroeconomic backdrop for fundraising. This is that you can drive change with private equity sponsors saying, hey, unless you fix this female representation issue, it's going to be difficult for us to invest with you. That's when you'll get the behavior change. Otherwise, it's been unfortunately not very um, not very acceptable or not very um, uh, helpful in terms of what's happened with uh, with the numbers. Then your final question is, what's it like been like for me? I'd say peaks and troughs. Um, there have been many, many moments where I've had to raise eyebrows at my uh, at my colleagues in the industry because of things that are said or the way things are put across. That's because they're just not used to dealing with a lot of senior women. By and large, the industry has warmly accepted me. It was hard in the beginning, no question about it. When I started, when I started my own business, which was now ooh, 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, it was not easy at all. They didn't understand who I was, what I was building. My firm is 100% female-led mm. uh, in terms of my business. Uh, my firm, when I had it myself, and then also in Raymond James, I run the business globally for them. We're 100% female-led, and we're over 60% female and minorities when you combine the two together. So now, we look very different. So yeah, they don't yeah. know what to do with us. Most and just so our listeners uh, know, um, the backstory is you were essentially an aqua hire. Is that a fair way to put it? You had a firm and Raymond James was like, I want you and your whole team because you guys are that great. Right. Yes. They took everybody. We bought 22, 23 people at acquisition wow. date. So they bought the whole business and they've been great to us. You know, I, I'd say Raymond James's culture has been a pleasant surprise. We did the deal because we believed in the culture at Raymond James and I'm pleased to say it's almost two years in. So the honeymoon's definitely over. This is not honeymoon speak. Yeah, it's yeah, real yeah. speak, which is, they've been really good to us. I think um, culture is set at the top by leadership. And Jim Bunn, who runs um, the investment banking division of Raymond James, has been a terrific uh, supporter of the type of business we've built. We've built differently. We've built diversely. He's backed that all the way. And understands that that may mean certain compromises, right? 
we may not rush to make a hire just because we need to get on with it. We'll wait to get the right diversity in the candidate pool before making that decision. So he gets that we will build a little differently to many other businesses he has under his wings, but we will do so for the right reasons, which is to continue to do so diversely. Now, you have a pretty cool backstory on how you inked that deal with your firm and Raymond James. Rather than just hobnobbing on a golf course somewhere, you were like, hey, let's let's take a trip together. Let's let's go and hang out, maybe poolside, go snorkeling in Antigua. Was that something that you thought of as like, hey, I got to get to know these folks on maybe like a different level. Like I got to know what I can hang with these guys before I agree to sign over my my baby, my, my yeah. firm that I worked so hard to launch. I don't want to work with a toxic person or having them on vacation. They show you who you who they really are. People that show you who they are on vacation. What, what, what was so behind true. that idea? I would say, you know, life, life does these things to you to, to, to show people who they are. I love Maya Angelou's quote. When people tell you who they are, believe them, right? And for me, it was um, the pandemic that made it happen this way. Uh, firstly, I'm useless on a golf course. Uh, uh, most full-time working moms of three kids would, would probably say they're useless on a golf course. I certainly am. Um, it's definitely on a wish list of something I'll pick up when my kids are off to college, but, but not today. Um, so that would have been lost on me. And in the pandemic, this was in the throes of the pandemic. Remember, this is early to mid-2021. Uh, the Raymond James folks in headquarters could not uh, visit me. Um, I was in London at the time. They couldn't visit me because of quarantine requirements without spending 14 days in quarantine. And I couldn't get into the United States because Trump had a travel brand on. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, well, where do we meet? There's no way we're inking this deal. They're not going to buy the business and I'm not going to sell it to them without meeting in person. And so we looked at a number of Caribbean islands and settled on, on Antigua as a place <laughs> where we could both fly in and out of. And just the way the flights worked, we could, there were no daily flights because it was the middle of the pandemic. There were lockdowns. And so we kind of all had to fly in and spend three days together. And that was such a blessing because as you rightfully said, Tony, you can pretend in a conference room setting. You can even pretend over one dinner and then fly back out. That's right. It's really hard to make up pretenses for three, four days when you're swimming together and going snorkeling <laughs> and fig figuring out how to spend time yeah. <laughs> because your flight's not until two days later. So that was a great blessing for us. And I'm very glad I did it because it made me very comfortable to sell the business. And I, I know you wear a lot of hats uh, professionally, but you also, as you mentioned, uh, mom of three kids. Uh, what's the balance like? And do you have any advice? Yeah, I think most days the advice is sellotape and staples, pick your tool and, and, and make it all work together. But I joke. I think um, for me, the pivot to my life came from finding my own mental balance every day. Um, and once I was able to achieve that centricity on a daily basis, everything else stopped feeling like work. Um, otherwise, the rate of burnout for working moms in particular in finance is very high in private equity. It's sky high. Um, I got into meditation about a dozen years ago and held on to it. And now it's part of my daily practice and has been for over half a dozen years. Come what may, rain or shine, sick kids or deals that are on fire, I will meditate. Um, I'll do it for a full hour now. Most people find that daunting. And so I tell them, hey, yeah. start with five or 10 minutes and then build right. the muscle. It's, it's a muscle like anything else in your body. It takes time to build. And for me, that's been a game changer. It means that whatever life throws me that day, I'll take it. I'll deal with it. I'll be able to reset from it and move on. It doesn't, things don't sway me, the good or the bad, as, as much as 
as they once used to. It's like your sine curve of, curve of life stops being so deep uh, yeah. and high, both on the peaks and the troughs. It's much narrower band. And therefore, you live a more balanced and happier life. And that's been a game change for me. And what's like the first step to someone who has never done it or maybe sees an ad on Instagram or something like that about meditation, but they want you to pay a certain amount of money to get started. And maybe someone just needs, uh, you know, that just that first step to just try it out for maybe, like you said, five or 10 minutes and then maybe yeah. invest more time. What's your advice? How do, what, what do you do? Is it just a matter of sitting and, and lighting a candle and doing nothing or just clearing your mind? What is it? Yeah. I would say if you're brand new to meditation, pick your favorite app. It doesn't matter. Hit play and start. You have to start somewhere. There's many different types of meditation out there. Get on, get going, right? Don't be so picky on which app and which type and, and this and that. Just get started because any moments of stillness you can get give your brain is a moment of healing, is a moment where you're letting go and not adding. That's, that, that's a moment extra of peace in that day that you would not have had. Yeah. So my first recommendation is get started. Once you've been in your journey and you're now finding yourself doing med guided meditations, you know, once a day for a few minutes each day, then say, okay, now I want to take a deeper step. And that deeper step to really train that muscle is to attend a meditation course. Mm -hmm. The course I go to every year, in fact, I'm going in a couple of weeks um, and I've done it every year for over a dozen years now is Vipassana meditation, it's free. There are many centers across the U.S., I think about 20-odd centers across the United States, many centers across Europe as well. Um, and you sign up and you go and it's, it's, uh, you sit and you, they teach it to you. And, and you leave everything behind. And that's a form of immersion. If you think about you're trying to reset your body, you take yourself to a, to a health retreat or a, or a yoga course, or you take yourself to the boot camp, right. um, and you put yourself through a full cleanse. This is a mental cleanse. Right? It's a full mental reset where they really teach you how to meditation, meditate ABC and you just practice it continuously for a number of days and you come out of a course going, ah, now I know how to meditate. And that's your full immersion that you can then take with you um, throughout the course of the next year until you feel like you need a new reset and you need a new sort of jolt to the system to get your mind into the, the mode of meditating. So that's how I would say, I'd say just get started, guys. Just get, get going, your favorite app, whatever you like, do it for a few months and you'll find, okay, now I'm seeing some benefits from this. What's next? How can I take the next step? And then think about going to a course. And what was the name of that course? It's Vipassana, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. -S -S -A -A, and there's a wonderful website that links to centers around the world. It's dhamma.org, D-H-A-M-M-A.org. It's completely free. And um, like I said, they've got a center in pretty much half of the U.S. states and many, many of the European countries. So I have you for about maybe uh, one and a half minute more. I would love to know uh, throughout your career, who do you admire? Who has been an inspiration for you either personally and or in the business world? Yeah, I would say there's, there's a number of folks that are high on my list. Um, but if I had to pick one person whom I have always admired personally and professionally, um, it would be Oprah Winfrey. It's a little cliche to hear a woman say that, but no, 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 you know, no. she's been a tremendous, um, she's been a tremendous service to women around the world through her message. Um, and also what she's done with respect to spreading the word of spirituality towards women, right? To think about what is your spiritual path and follow it. But she's done it in the domain of a terrific media empire that she's built. Um, so nothing but tremendous respect. If I had to pick one woman, it would be her. 
She was also a journalist. She was also a journalist. She also comes up every now and then from folks that we interview at Benzinga. Um, you know, when she plugs a brand or a company, that is like almost like a golden ticket for some entrepreneurs. Yeah. Just she's she's the original influencer. Now we've got yeah. so many, but she is the originale, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, Sunaina, thank you so much for coming on Benzinga Interviews. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, you and I keep in touch offline, of course, but uh, I would love to have you back on at some point to talk the latest at Raymond James and whatever projects you have on the horizon. Thank you for having me, Tony. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.